This is Classical Reboot, progressive talks on Western classical music. So we're talking about composer-performer relationship today, and more specifically, composers that are also performers. There might be a few exceptions to the rule as we go down lists, and we're and we're just here to discuss it because it's a really interesting relationship about how that relationship has changed, how it's been affected throughout the history of Western music, and I. I hate to bring it back to the beginning, but um, I, I think it's important to know where we're coming from. So, history of Western music, we've all, a lot of the more successful composers that are part of the canon, and I say that's a very loaded sentence, but I'm, I'm going to stick with <laughs> we're it. We're going to roll with it for now, and we're yeah. going to see if we run into problems <laughs> later with it, all right? Um, I, maybe I'll switch it to canonical composers of the ones of we what? talk about. Yeah, old dead white guys. A there lot it is. of them. We finally found <laughs> a great way to sum it up. They they were often uh, they were composers. They were also performers, and this includes, but is not limited to uh, Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, Liszt, um, Schubert, Brahms, Debussy, um, Paganini. The, the list could go on. Um, there are many more that aren't listed there. We're just trying to give you an idea of who we're talking about. Right. And the, I, I believe the expectation in that time, and, and I think that this is possibly still an expectation, or maybe it's a reborn expectation, is that the composer was also a performer. And so we, we find a lot of these um, musicians that were, you know, they they were able to write wonderful music because they could play said wonderful music. Um, we all know Bach was an avid improviser. We know Mozart was, you know, a prodigy with his everything. Um, you know, Beethoven was uh, similar to Mozart. Um, however, you know, he was also maybe not as much known as a performer, but we know that he was, you know, a trained um, pianist or keyboard player. For um, Beethoven, it was mostly, I mean, once he lost his hearing, he wasn't as successful for a performer. But before that, he was a he was a wonderful concert pianist, but yeah. he was also Beethoven and moody as all heck. And <laughs> that didn't, right. you know, concert pianists, sorry, tend to be divas at the best of times and <laughs> beethoven was beyond that but yeah then you yeah. talk about chopin list list the list and paganini are really interesting in this because they right. both are almost equally famous if not in paganini's case more famous for their performances than their compositions which is interesting because they both progressed the technique right. and the idea of their instruments and of music so far just within their lifetimes right i i actually don't like a lot of list compositions um they're not that good they're, they're not, really they, yeah. they use a lot of chromaticism and it's like okay like we get it you want it to be like strauss before strauss but <laughs> like, but, but what they do is show off the pianist you know absolutely. show off the ability and that's that's the point of them um and 
It's I the am, same with Paganini. His yeah. his compositions really can go either way. They're really flashy. They're great encore pieces if right. you've got the stamina for them. Right. But other than that, they're just mm-hmm. that. That's all. They're they're just flashy examples of what the instrument can do. Right. Um, and uh, Brahms was obviously you know, a well-known pianist. Maybe not so much a performer, but he was. You know, people knew him as. And he was quite capable. Yeah, as a very you know capable piano player. So, and you have the same thing with Schubert and uh, Schumann as well, just because I always think of those two in the same breath. Yep. Even yeah. though I prefer Schubert's compositions, if we're gonna really nitpick it, but that's because Schubert actually wrote decent things for string quartet. <laughs> um, <laughs> fair enough. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the I want to go back to the idea you said uh, where there's this. You know, expectation of being able to perform and compose. Yeah, and I, I want to say I think some of that is down to the education because I think for a long time mm. there wasn't this idea that you became a performer. You were expected to be able to compose and perform mm. and teach. And mm-hmm. if you were a teacher, you know, if you were studying something from, if you were studying with Chopin, you weren't just studying piano. Mm-hmm. You weren't just studying composition. You were also studying theory and ear training and you were doing all of these yeah. things and learning all of these various skills yeah. to be a professional musician yeah. and then you know the the most well-known people are the people who were most successful at all of them yeah but then you do have the people who played you know there were great musicians in box uh orchestras at various courts that he was in mm-hmm. and there you know mozart had access to wonderful musicians haydn had access to wonderful musicians all right. of these people are you know writing for people who are amazing at their instruments but everyone was expected to learn a base level of that composition and then i think you know what's interesting is most of these are in debussy's about as close to the 20th century as we get with yeah you know the with these composers and then it starts to fall off i think and, and yeah we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it and that i think is kind of the rise of the conservatory well that's a let's, little bit just because it's the yeah. shift in education there and they th- these people had to perform and compose because they needed to make money at a time when there wasn't standardized right way of making money in the same way that there is later on yeah i just wanted to bring that point up a little bit right so let's fast forward to the 20th century and let's actually start with Debussy. so he um i guess for those who don't know broke a lot of the conventional molds in part in like (laughs) counterpoint and writing and everything in general has to do with classical music Absolutely, Um, and he yeah and he was an he was an active pianist um and which shows a lot in his music he's his the way he writes even for orchestra string quartets and everything it's very pianistic it 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 makes a lot more sense to play the music on the piano than it would necessarily to play on other instruments and that's not to say that this music isn't you know good but it's clear that he was writing it at a piano um He yeah. wrote some great music, but and it, it's fun to play, but it's not always idiomatic to instruments. Mm-hmm. He really stepped away from some of that. His orchestration is really interesting, I, mm-hmm. I think, because that's a kind of in that he he almost like if you look at La Mer, he was thinking about the tone of the instrument rather than yeah. anything else, and he was yeah. thinking about the effect he could create with an instrument, right. and he didn't really he wasn't worried about the range as right. much. He wasn't worried about the technique because he'd just be like, well, I can play it on the piano here and I want the clarinet to play this line. So we just gave the clarinet that right. line and it right. 
I think that's that's yeah. something I've noticed in Debussy's music, which is interesting, and he did break a lot of rules. Yeah, so we start to see um, in the 20th century, and I'm kind of coming to this realization now, it's, it's almost like there's a specialization. You know, mm-hmm. as music progressed, there was specialization uh, and a divide between uh, the composer and the performer. Um, and that also comes, you know, it, on paper, I guess it sounds great because, you know, as a composer, you can focus on writing and that's that's mostly what you're doing. And as a performer, you just focus on, you know, performing your music. And that um, also comes with its own issues and baggage as well. Um, cause you begin to get these really, uh, complex and esoteric, um, pieces written by these composers where, and then you also have these performers that are wanting to continue canonical work. So you get a little bit of a, um, dissonance between the relationship there, but bringing it back into focus on, the individuals that were both performers and composers, um, we have um, seemingly a lot fewer in the 20th century. And this isn't to say that composers probably didn't have, or composers probably had the chops to perform and play instruments, but they, again, were becoming very specialized in their work and therefore showed little interest or... It was just wasn't the expectation to be an avid uh, performer, but um, I think a big outlier in this is Bartok, as he was known as an incredibly accomplished uh, concert pianist, um, as well as a really um, accomplished pedagogue. Um, he really saw the benefit of like educating young populations and. Uh, promoting artistry in um, in youth. Yeah, it's the early music education things, and that kind of goes along with Bartok. And I just want to throw just could I's name in there in uh, conjunction with Bartok, especially when we talk about the pedagogy. Okay, because it it comes out of there. Both of them wanted to go into uh, kind of Central Europe and root out all of these folk. Uh, so all these folk songs and these things that were starting to get lost in the rapid modernization of the world around the turn yeah, of the 20th century. Yeah. And then they wanted to use those to teach people. Okay. And Kodai, there is a Kodai method for teaching. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely familiar with it, but in any case, they both, both Bartok and Kodai had this dream of educating music education being universal and everybody getting a chance to learn certain Mm -hmm. things and Mm -hmm. have a baseline knowledge of music and they thought that was super important and i believe kodai was a decent performer in his own right yeah stringed instruments i think but i'm not entirely sure yeah yeah uh but far less well known than bartok and bartok is wrote far more great works if you will yeah yeah but you know linking them together just in the name of pedagogy and that idea of trying to yeah spread music to everyone at a certain level i i I do find it interesting is that we a lot of these composers and i'm pretty sure i mentioned this earlier but i just want to emphasize they a lot of them are trained 
you know, as I would maybe, maybe not performers, but they are trained to be able to play instruments and they understand um, this. It's just the fact that there was this push either by the conservatory or just the um, natural progression of the way Western music was beginning to cultivate a culture of the divide between a composer and a performer. Yeah, and so, I think you see it a little bit with the rise of orchestras, Yeah, where you have oh, these yeah. dedicated performance groups to works of the masters. Yeah, if you, yeah. you have these dedicated bodies, and you start to get these dedicated conductors, and some of those conductors are composers as well. Right. Mahler springs to mind as a great example around sure. this time period that we're kind of talking about, but yeah. they, they don't... Um, you're you're, they created a demand for high-level players that were specifically performers and in no way composers. And I think that's you don't see composers moving to just being composers yeah. because I don't think that's ever been a completely... I don't think as a composer you've ever been able to divorce completely from playing an instrument. Yeah. Yeah, and the only other composer I can think of from like the early 20th century, late 19th century is that had that career um, was Berlioz. He wasn't known as an instrumentalist or a performer in yeah, any capacity, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it, but he's like the only, and he and his career wasn't even that successful when he was alive, so. And- even when you look at the body of his work overall, I mean, he's got a few pieces, but it's like Berlioz, Symphony Fantastique, next. Right, right. There's there, not a lot of his... And uh, people are going to be screaming about whatever compositions Berlioz wrote that no one plays, <laughs> talks about. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, yeah. we're talking about people like Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert. Brahms, well, let's 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 move forward ones. since this yeah, is a, a podcast about new music. Let's get out of this because I don't think either of us want to spend too much time. No, on it. no. So I I, I want to just do a brief sidebar on jazz. Um, jazz, I think, was an incredibly um, influential genre on the idea of a composer also being a performer. Virtually every. Uh, jazz artists in the early 20th century, mid 20th century and forward um, is both writing and performing all of their music. Um, you have, Absolutely. yeah. And you even have, I mean, uh, Duke Ellington is, and always will be one of my favorite um, composers, writers, arrangers, you name it. And he was, you know, also the pianist in his big band. That's huge. You know, yeah. he, he was, uh, as much of a performer as he was a um, as a director, and I mean, talk about a hell of a um, arranger or, or sorry, or, oh orchestrator. God. Just Orca- yeah, I was yeah. I was gonna bring up his orchestration because some of his, his the the things he writes for jazz big band yeah are he wrote kind of the first symph he wrote some of the first American symphonies. I really feel like I mean you've got yeah. you you've got like William Grant Still and Aaron Copland and you know Gershwin writing these things yeah. but also in in those 20s I mean Ellington wrote stuff that is symphonic in scope yeah his um concert at Carnegie Hall where he um, premiered Black Brown and Beige is by far still one of my favorite recordings um of music period uh and yeah he was he was the leader of the group and also a, a performer so that's that i just want to sidebar jazz real yeah. quick i think it's i think it's important because it is 
um, as much of an influence on new music as I think, you know, canonical Western music is. Yeah, so absolutely. I I will probably bring up jazz very frequently um, when talking about um, you know influences on Western music because it's important. It ha- it happened and it's there. So absolutely. So moving uh, more to the experimental um, side of things and um, getting into the more modern stuff. That, yeah, well, this isn't even truly modern yet, but we're trying to get towards <laughs> these towards what we want to really talk about. <laughs> um, I think a great example of a mid-20th century um, composer-performer is John Cage with his um, performance art. Just in general, he was doing a lot of stuff with um, like visual artists and performing things on stage. And I don't think... I can't speak for him because I've never met him, nor have I read anything about this, but I just have this hunch that he didn't really see a huge divide between the performance or the performer and the composer. And rather he just saw it as a single process that happened. Yeah. And I have done quite a bit of research and writing about John Cage yeah, and into his more his earlier ideas and it's really interesting to me that he starts off as a uh, he, he is a composer and he is also a pianist and a drummer as well or a percussionist really not drummer in the sense of a set his early work he's kind of the guy who really started the prepared piano idea the idea of putting things in a piano and that came out of that was something that came up when he was a dance accompanist in a studio and they were doing all of this modern dance stuff and he needed to be able to produce various percussive sounds, but he couldn't always have people around to play all of these percussive instruments he had. And so he started putting these things together oh, okay. and then he starts studying. At some point he gets introduced to Zen and Buddhist philosophy and Eastern philosophy in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. And he starts playing around with this idea in Buddhist philosophy and Zen that uh, the most natural way of representing something is to let it be itself mm-hmm. and express it as itself and let it be wholly itself. And it's this philosophy that he, Cage tried to bring into music where as a performer and as a composer, he didn't think of himself as either one. Yeah. He, yeah. there's a, there's a, quote from him and i'm not sure exactly all the context of it but it basically comes down to him saying i am not a composer i am a sound arranger okay and he didn't think of himself as he thought of himself as just kind of these sounds exist and i'm just putting them out there and they're going to be listened to and they're going to be experienced by the audience right he wanted to put these sounds out there and he didn't want to he didn't want to push his agenda on the sound. He wanted the sound to come out, exist, be what it was going to be, and then let it happen. And that kind of goes into the... He's just an interesting figure mm-hmm. when you start talking about performing and composing because he didn't even see himself as either of those things eventually. Yeah. He just saw himself as a sound arranger who's... Yeah. making sounds and it, it was very he really got into this eastern philosophy which is completely antithetical to okay. how western especially academic music at the time was yeah. being used and taught because when you look at chance and then you look at you know like boulez yeah at the same time like yeah because they they 
loved what each other were doing for so long, and then they just completely fell out with each other because yeah, their styles eventually became so incredibly different. So let's talk about that. Um, Long sidebar and cage for me. No, and I think it's important because it, it brings us to this idea of the ego of the composer in the 20th century, or specifically the mid-20th century, and right. how that, I believe, really enforce this idea of the separation of the composer and the performer so and maybe this isn't the best example because i know stockhausen did perform some stuff but i also know he was relentless with his performers and was like very particular if about a performer could play the notes on the page articulations and everything perfectly but you know they missed you know they didn't hold a note you know, a 30 second note long enough, like it wasn't, it wasn't good enough for him. Um, I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> I think that's absolutely ridiculous. So you have this, this ego, this God complex of the composer, um, enforcing, um, you know, this, this, this hyper specificity to, um, the performer to almost an impossible, um, um, standard which you know, what that's to me that that almost defeats the purpose of art you have i understand especially at being a composer wanting your art to be reflected from the performer you know you you have an idea and the um you try and transcribe it and um, show it to the performer the best way possible but at the end of the day and this goes back to something we said in the, the last um in a previous episode is uh, you have to let it go. You can't, you can't hold on to these, you know, um, these expectations that you have all the time. Right. And for me as a performer, I mean, I, I always want to present the work, especially if I'm working, if I'm able to work with a composer, I want to represent the work the way they see it. Yeah. But there's also a part of me that, you know, goes back to, if I play Bach, I'm playing the way I'm playing it the way I want to play it. Yeah. I don't have nearly as many instructions for Bach as I do for, let's say, for example, a, a Boulez piece or a Stockhausen piece. Yeah. Or, or even something more. Yeah, I mean, yeah, focused, and, like Ligeti or something. But it's, yeah. it's not, it's, there, there's still a part of me that goes, I can't just play what that composer wrote because if we all did that, it would always sound the same. And I, I need to be able to put something of my own soul in. Right. Otherwise, there's nothing for me to work for. Right, right, right. Because you're as much of like yourself. You have to put into the music, and that's that's a balance too yeah. between the composer because the composer's whole self is really in that piece. Right. But I, as a performer, can't divest myself completely. I could divest myself quite a bit because there are technical obligations and things like that. But there has to be some something in it for me. Of course. So you have these this music in the mid 20th century um probably i'm trying to remember the, I, I guess it's a little later so like it, it was in the 80s sort of jumping forward a bit but you have these hyper specific pieces and composers that fall into this category of new complexity like brian fernieho um and chernoan and i think some of some of that even goes back a little bit to Darmstadt. It it does. It absolutely uh, does. Like in the fifties. Yeah. Like as you look at like Boulez, Boulez is really doing similar stuff with 
you know, absolute, this is what I wrote, this is how it goes, this is how it sounds. Right. You, right. Uh, even like Zanakis, if you get into like yep. the Greek school, the Greek yep. school is totally into that. And it, you're right. I mean, I, I don't think it floated a, it didn't come up as much in the American scene, I feel like. Yeah. The US scene, rather, until later, because you have these experimentalists that exist that we've talked about a little bit. Yeah. You know, let, in the first episode and we've touched on cage a little more in this one and we can talk about those experimentalists a little if we want i i think we can take a little time to talk about i mean the you get into when you start talking about that type of stuff you get into also the minimalists and that's a largely american movement at first yep. the steve reich steve reich terry riley lamont young and you kind of have this movement of people doing tape music and doing yep elongated performances mm -hmm. and that's interesting because there are early performances of those things i'm reading a, a book with on the that's all right it's just a collection of writings by steve reich mm -hmm. and it's a lot of um a lot of composers working together to create these ideas mm -hmm. and not using traditional instruments yeah and so steve reich is working with computers and tapes and looping and doing all these different recording things that he's using and him and other composers would get together and put on concerts and stuff like that which is kind of bringing it back to that composer performer thing yeah they're doing it but without any traditional instruments and they're discovering how to use these instruments and create new instruments kind of right Right. through composing, which is, I think, a super interesting kind of... It, it's a branch off of kind of what we're talking well, about. And it's, it's, and it's really interesting. It's composition through experimentation, which is also composition through performance. And I think that's something that minimalism and minimalists of that um, era really embraced and really um, sought after is this, you know, again, this idea of um, like what Cage was purporting, like, you know, there isn't it, it, we're looking for a single product here. We're not looking for, um, I guess, a hierarchy or like a, a class system where these things are created through. Because um, Steve Reich was a pretty active performer. Um, he actually, in the premiere or in the development of Terry Riley's NC, was the one that suggested having um, a pulse on the piano the whole time. Yeah. Um, because it didn't have that originally, and uh, it was problematic to put together. I was reading a yeah, I was, oh yeah, I was reading a book uh, that's about the four minimalists, kind of the uh, Lamont Young, Terry Riley, Steve Reich, and Philip Glass. Yeah, um, it's a book. It just kind of covers each one of them. Yeah, very in depth, and that that story was in there when I was reading about Terry Riley. Yeah, it was really interesting because it. Riley's idea couldn't really actually work without yeah. that pulse right. because it was so chaotic for the performers. Yeah. And then you get that suggestion and it works and it's kind of a really seminal work in minimalism, which is right. awesome. Right. So we have bringing it back to composer performers. I believe we have an explosion of um, a lot of composers that are also performers in the uh, 21st century. I think this is partially due to um, necessity and that you, yeah. you, if you're going to have a career as a composer, you can't just write music. You also need to be um, performing music as well. Um, and this is something I, um, I try and encourage any you know, young composer or individual I come across is 
you can't just spend your you know all your time by yourself in a room writing music you have to go out and also perform and i mean not only you know to you know possibly because um, it's uh, performance is an in, <laughs> significantly more lucrative uh, aspect of music than uh, yeah. um, than writing is. Um, but if nothing else, you're making connections with performers. Who's gonna play right. your, Who's gonna play your music um, if you don't know anybody? And that's yeah. You, you have to get in those communities. Also, there's something that. Uh, well, you remember Adam Zukowitz from yep. International Music Festival, the Adriatic, that we where we met. Yep. And he said something that I think is really kind of one of the most important things that I've heard anybody say about composers. And he's a piano, he's a professional pianist mm-hmm. and faculty member at a school in Colorado. <clears throat> I I want to say he's Northern Colorado, but don't quote me anybody. You can Google him. He's, he's out there. <laughs> he, he said that you have to be the first advocate for your works yep. as a composer. So being able to play the piano, being able to play violin or any instrument really, just and being able to compose for it and play examples of your work on an instrument and being able to perform it and get it out there and advocate for yourself yeah. is so important because if you're not gonna advocate for for your work, yeah. no one will. Right, right. I, uh... An instructor of mine once said he was at um, Curtis as a composition student, and um, girl he was dating at the time was his violinist, and he was, in his words, bitching to her about um, how no one's playing his music, and she said, "Well, it's because you're not a performer. Like we don't we don't want to perform music that's." Um, uh, written by somebody that doesn't also perform essentially um and And this gets into a big topic that we wanted to cover today so let's let's dive into this idea yeah well and but the the moral of that story is um he was a pianist and um he was a fine one nothing like he wasn't a concert pianist or anything but he uh eventually you know they sat down they hacked through some um i think it was like some haydn um sonatas yeah or something like that um, with a group of people, and he bombed it, but they all laughed, and then you know, then he had a bunch of people to play his music. So um, that's interesting. Yeah, and I, I think that that's you know an important thing. And he, and then he wrapped it up with you know a quote of like, "Why, why trust a mechanic that doesn't drive a vehicle?" Um, right, and that was a big in our talks before this episode. That was kind of something that you put forth in our document, and we're asked me to think about and yep. uh, it's you know you you said you you've had to prove yourself multiple times you want to talk a little bit about that and then i'll kind of get into what yeah and it, what, i yeah. see on my end as a performer sure um and when i guess i when i say i had to prove myself it wasn't what what i did see happen was in in my undergrad experience i I began to do less ensembles and do and focus more on writing, um, as one does when they start to study composition, because I couldn't spend you know five you know however many hours a week uh, in an ensemble room. Um, right, because if you're if you're trying to practice for that and do those things, it's like that ends up being like a 
15 hour commitment over learning a week over learning the music and doing the thing and right depending on the amount of ensembles you're in but it can it snowballs yeah exactly exactly so and it's not that i cut ensembles out completely i still put in orchestra so basically i went from being in a jazz band a jazz combo uh orchestra choir uh, new music ensemble, like All basically being like five ensembles, I went down to like three, two and a half kind of thing. Um, and uh, I definitely, again, no one told me this or no one like overtly um, said these things, but I definitely felt this attitude of maybe resentment, but definitely, or maybe not betrayal, but people are were began to question like why why do you why are you doing this or like what do you think you're so so much better than you know performing these ensembles that you would rather like spend like time writing or stuff and um and maybe some of it was in my head but i definitely began to notice less people were willing to uh, work with me and be like cooperative when i wanted to work with them so yeah, I see that as being kind of a six of one, half dozen of the other situation. Yeah, it, it's like partially because you're you're out there, and then it's yeah, what, what you said. I think it's it's going to be both. Yeah, maybe not in equal parts, but it's unfortunate. Right. Yeah. So I I think that there is a huge amount of you have to you have to build relationships with performers and. I think a great way to do that is to play music with them because then they yeah. understand where you're coming from. And um, they also uh, get a taste of what you like to do just in general because you can tell stuff about somebody and how they perform, yeah. what they want to emphasize and things like that. That's going to come through in your compositions. Yeah, absolutely. So let's reel it back to yeah. um, talking about specific performers in the 21st century that have shown... Um, their interests, you know, or um, I guess composer performers, composers that are yeah, also yeah, yeah. playing their music. They're playing other people's music. Um, Cause I think now it's, as I said come earlier, back. It's, definitely come back. it's definitely come back. And I think it's as much of a part of a uh, necessity as it is a part of um, just how things are going here. Um, I, and, and some of these are really well-known names and they don't really need, um, you know, our extra support necessary, but they're, they're, they're not going to see a bump in uh, listenership just because we talked about them. No, no, <laughs> but, but I, and I'm Sad. sure, and I'm sure that there are, because of the, the nature of everything right now, I'm sure that there are a bunch of other, um, uh, composers that are also performers, but, um, I bet there are a lot of composers who are turning themselves into, performers more so than they were even before right because of what's going on right now with yeah COVID-19 and their inability to find an ensemble to work with or someone to work with you have to right. start playing it yourself I guess and I, I bet that's changing as well because it's uh, yeah gonna see more of an uptick there's already been a pretty large uptick in, yeah you could throw a couple names in the yeah the I mean I I mean I'm me personally I've been I know I'm gonna have a few pieces that are gonna be very strong like heavy with double bass and piano and i will be performing them so um does that there's not going to be cello involved i mean there could be <laughs> i just you know yeah yeah i got you i'm gonna no worries. pour myself out into every poser <laughs> that i can um i'll play anything <laughs> the 
so let's just let's just go down the list because we we got some names here. I um, think we can go Sarah Bell Reed. We've already talked. We've about already her. talked about Sarah she's Bell Reed. She's doing a whole ton of that. She's yeah. great. She's fantastic. Yeah, uh, we talked about her. So. Yeah, uh, Caroline Shaw is a huge name. Obviously, she. I was looking more into what she has done, and it boggles my mind. Honestly, yeah, everything yeah. she's done. Oh, it's incredible. She's actually as much of a performer as she is a. Uh, composer. I mean, and both her, uh, you know, singing and uh, playing violin, and um, any like um, she she does some electronic stuff. She doesn't. Yeah, yeah, she does. She, she doesn't. She, she does like. Uh, well, she did a singing thing. Well, she won the with her surprise yeah, with for uh, room eight voices. Yeah, room full of teeth. Partita for eight voices. Yeah, partita for eight voices. Yep. She also did a thing with vocorder, okay. which was inter. Like yeah. that's kind of bridging into that electronic yeah. usage. She did a voice piece for Vocorder that ended up uh, getting her producing, writing, and performing credit on The Life of Pablo by Kanye West. So, Oh, really? Oh, yeah, she's like know. credited as a producer on like three songs and sings wow. on a few of them. Like, And she's she did Life of Pablo and she also did some work for Nasa Nasser. Cool. That's really cool. I did not know that. She's so varied. Go her. It's yeah. Scary. Yeah, that's great. We probably made more money from that than anything else. Right. Right. Um, and then we have the whole collective bang on a can with uh, right. David Lang, Julia Wolf, uh, Robert Black. Um, they're all. I didn't know as much about Robert Black, but I had heard the other two names from Bang on a Can. Yeah. Well, Robert Black's um, at heart up in Connecticut. So. Oh, that's a. I like that school. Yeah, yeah. A person I met at a, um, a festival last year. She is also a double bassist, and she works with Robert. So, um, says he's a super cool guy, which I'm not surprised. Um, and then also, uh, so going down another, you know, more people we have. Conrad yeah. Tao. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting him at the American Music Festival by Albany Symphony. He had a yeah. piece uh, premiered there in 2017, 18. Can't remember the year I was there. Um, one of those two. And uh, yeah, phenomenal work. Um, and so he's a very accomplished pianist as well. He had his Carnegie yes. Hall premiere. Um, this past year and or 2019, I believe. Um, yeah, cool guy. Um, and you know, uh, you meet those people that are the same age as you, and they're doing way cooler wildly things. more successful. Yeah, and it's always a good feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. You love it. <laughs> yeah, it just feels. So- I think you were the one who introduced me to Conrad Tao, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think you sent me an article about him. Okay. Oh, yeah. Or yeah. Maybe yeah. Not- it might have been about his premiere at Carnegie, but yeah, um, I think it was. But he's been—I didn't really know that much about him. But yeah, yeah he's—he's he's huge, been a, yeah, huge performer and big, big composer as well. I mean, he—he's yep. really kind of burst onto the scene. Yep. Yeah. Um, and he's been doing stuff since you know young age too. So yeah. Yeah. He. Um, so damn prodigies. Right. Right. Um, Rena Esmail is a name I wanted to bring up. She's slightly more of a composer than she is a performer, um, but she she's still very much an active pianist. Um, but she okay. has done a lot of really cool things with um, just outreach in general and using oh, her composition awesome. for um, social um, justice and moving um, things forward. She has... Um, 
I can't remember the exact name off the top of my head, but she has this program where essentially she um, goes to prisons and, you know, organizes choirs and, you know, teaches, you know, um, people um, all all by ear, all aural. She doesn't ex- yeah. she doesn't give them music does, or anything. She does a lot of teaching, from what I when yeah, I was so, looking yeah, into. Her. She so, does a whole yeah. ton of teaching, and it's also well, really cool because she she's also taking um, Western and classical ideas and blending them with Hindustani music correct. and instruments, which right. I'm always so into because yeah. I've I I don't know uh, at my undergrad did a, just like you know a little bit into Carnatic music, which is more southern indian and then hindustani is more northern Mm. hindu related Mm. music and Mm -hmm. it's i took a class where we talked about carnatic and then later i took a class where we ended up talking about hindustani music as well and it's honestly just so interesting and their whole tradition in indian classical music is awesome and i just really love the the combination of the two yep and there are a number of performers and composers working in that and it's just super super interesting um and so yeah i love plugging her she's a great individual just as nice as can be as well so that's awesome yeah yeah always love to hear it yeah um so another um uh the next two examples are uh or next three examples actually are going to be um chicago specific um uh, Kelly Sheehan is this uh, wonderful uh, electronic experimental um, composer and is also a very active performer um, in that realm, very similar to Sarah Bell Reed, doing a lot of stuff with signal processing. Um, she does a lot of stuff with Max, MSP, um, and oh. sound manipulation. So she was big in, um, she's now getting her uh, PhD at Harvard um, for music composition, but when she was in Chicago, she was very active in the noise scene here, um, which was awesome. A, yeah, really cool. Um, a lot of really cool concerts. So her um, and um, a good friend of mine, Jonathan Hanau, um, he, oh yeah, yeah. You know, you might know John. He's uh, a wonderful. I haven't been in the scene that long. Like, come on. Yeah. I know a few people. <laughs> he he was in a um, uh, a noise group with Kelly, but he, um, along with being a wonderful composer, is an incredibly accomplished pianist. Um, yeah, yeah. I've seen some stuff that he's he's been doing a few things. Yeah, yeah. So I and again, I'll, I'll always plug him as well because he's, you know, Absolutely. A, a good friend of mine, but um an incredible great guy. Great guy. Great guy, great composer. Ad- the limited stuff that I've seen from him is yeah. really really interesting. Huge advocate for new music. Um Absolutely. Yeah. He is a he's a gr- uh, great series um that includes um toy piano compositions yeah. as well. Um he's a he's a huge advocate for that instrument. So um, yeah, um, another Chicago uh, native is Timothy Ernest Johnson. He was um, an intern professor at um, um, my conservatory um, for electronic music, and he's a um, classically trained guitarist, um, but he also does a lot with um, electronic music, and he actually studied with um, James Tenney and... Um, Ben Johnston and like those guys that oh, yeah, yeah. purported um, um, stochastic music and so that that lineage um, actually a lot of that was from um, um, Champaign Urbana, um, Illinois. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. yeah. Well, they had a big, they had a real big new music scene for a while. Yep, it's a, it's a lot. It's very, cool. It's very big in computer music. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so he's a great um, uh, 
per, uh, individual to have in the scene as both a performer and a composer. Um, I've always really enjoyed his music. So, um, and last but not least is um, Tonya Ko is this um, wonderful individual who's now I believe in the UK. I can't remember what. I think it's. You've out. mentioned you've mentioned Tonya Ko to me before this. I yeah. I haven't. Well, I, I haven't heard as much about these three people as the others because I I moved to Chicago last August and mm-hmm. obviously only had a few months before being kind of <laughs> completely uprooted from that with the uh, whole COVID nineteen thing. Right, right. But yeah, it's really interesting to hear about these these uh, Chicago people because I don't I don't know them, but I'm around and I'll. Yeah, I need to look into it more. I need to get more into the scene, but that's not really happening. I was hoping to do that this summer. I know it's it's unfortunate. Um, but Tony does. Well, yeah, Tony. Well, she does. Yeah, she does a lot of great. I think she's New York native. I could be mistaken, but um, she uh, does these wonderful pieces where the main instrument is bubble wrap. Um, and you, yeah, you, she has a table with like different, uh, bubble wrap, um, sizes and everything. And she gave a whole seminar on this, um, in my composition seminar one time. It was great. And, um, she has just a bunch of microphones around it and it's goes back to what we're talking about earlier with like signal processing is you take the noise from a bubble wrap and it's not just popping the bubbles. In fact, she said it's often not popping the bubbles. It's like the sound of you like rubbing against it again, like that squeaky sound, um, from it that like produces the most like uh, the the best um, signals and the best like sounds mm. to manipulate. So, um, so she gave a big old talk about that, um, and I you know and it I just a few months before she not even like two months if that before she came to visit our composition seminar, um, I just started really like diving deep into her music. So that was. Uh, a really cool, um, you know, way to, yeah. you know, I, I got into her music, then I got to meet her and ask all the questions I had. <laughs> and That's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. And she's, you know, a very kind, very, like, nurturing individual, so. Yeah, um, and I'm looking into her uh, bio a little bit just to get a bit more of a sense, because I just remember hearing her, and I've heard some of her stuff, I think. But she is white accomplished oh yeah but, mm-hmm. yeah she she's actually uh she was born in hong kong and raised in honolulu but then oh, okay. she went to eastman okay for yeah. under she she did she did her undergrad at eastman masters at indiana and dma at cornell right 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 and then she was she was doing some stuff in chicago 2018-19 for university of chicago mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then yeah she's uh going she's gonna be in uh, London as a lecture in composition at Royal Holloway at the University of London for 2020. Don't know how that's working out. I hope that works out well for her. Yeah, but, I think. Yeah. But that's a that's a that's really awesome. I mean, her her whole career is if uh, look at her bio, people. I mean, I yeah. I now understand why I recognize her because she was a Guggenheim fellowship yeah. recipient, yeah. So, yeah. you know, doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> Wildly successful. Yeah. Yeah. So she, um, doing that. Um, so kind of, I, I wanted to just touch briefly on like, or maybe wrap things up here. Um, specifically talking about, um, the Chicago scene and yeah. what it means to be like a composer performer in the Chicago scene. Cause I, I believe that, 
this scene specifically really promotes that mentality of promoting your own work and being as much of a performer as you are a composer. Um, I think one of the cool things about Chicago, and this extends beyond just the new music scene, but I think it extends into the comedy and the film scene mm, and the mm. photography and every artistic scene in Chicago, Mm -hmm. is that Chicago is a blending of the East and West Coast ideas. Because like New York and Boston and New England and the Northeast have their whole idea about how they want to do art. And then you've got the West Coast that has like the L.A., southern california kind of area has their whole idea and you have these other little pockets of like you've got like dc and like miami or texas washington seattle yeah austin absolutely yeah or like kansas city or something but like minneapolis i mean oh yeah yeah, absolutely the twin cities have a huge have a huge scene of their own but chicago brings together so many of those ideas and it's just so interesting for me to come like when i moved to chicago like you have it's it's a place that's big enough to hold all of those things in one place mm-hmm. and have it's such a melting pot of ideas yeah that it's it, it creates such an interesting sound well, and, and such think, an interesting scene yeah to me. well and there's so many different like neighborhoods in chicago yeah well, they, chicago's just a collection of neighborhoods it's so weird like yeah, yeah. once you get outside of the loop everything from what i've seen is just like got this little neighborhood this little neighborhood this little neighborhood but they're all right next to each other yeah yeah and they really are different like um because i live on the border of edgewater and andersonville and right. a yeah. lot of people kind of group them into the same thing and it's i mean i'm not here to be like they're so different because they're not like super different but like you you kind of know when you're like bridge that gap into from like edgewater into andersonville like yeah it's or like boys town into lakeview right like, right that's like pretty i mean people generally blur that but then it's like boys town wrigleyville lakeview east like You've got these, like, set neighborhoods. It's interesting. And, like, there's... Yep. You know when you're in a different one. Like, you know when you're in Boys Town versus Wrigleyville. Right. Even though they're right next to each other. And, mm-hmm. like, that's... But there, there is kind of so, a... It's so, interesting. Yeah. So it's very, like, compartmentalized. And I think with that being said, you have a lot of different styles and blends and people coming from different areas that bring these together. Um, and, and I think that also the venues here in Chicago really... Uh, promote that um experimental sound studio ess is an incredible resource um where they really promote um experimental music and and performance and yeah and they and i think more often than not when i see a concert being promoted there it's the composer itself you know performing their works you know and it's it's usually like um name performing name like of the same name it's right. like this person performing you know their work yeah um, a little bit outside of the classical scene although this this venue does do a lot of not a lot but it does classical stuff but it does a lot of experimental music i would yeah, say yeah like even within like the the pop indie jazz genres yeah it does a lot of experimental stuff that has a whole mess of crossover with classical and they sometimes have classical uh-huh. more more new classical composers and performers in there and i got introduced to it by a friend that i, I met in chicago and they it's uh elastic arts yep and yep. it's a really interesting venue along the same lines as the Experimental Sound Studio. A little... Uh, I don't know how focused on classical per se, the Experimental Sound Studio. Like, Elastic Arts is less 
classical and more I, I would say it's more uh, not really pop but more experimental jazz pop focused yeah. than yeah than classical but it's a really interesting place where um it's just this small venue you go in byob yeah yeah and hang out listen to some music for two hours and leave it's like a ten dollar cover yep yeah and it's super super interesting and i was planning on going there for a performance and then guess what <laughs> it happened <laughs> yeah everything got canceled yeah um yeah that's that's yeah I, I forgot about elastic arts yeah it's a great that's a great place i haven't been yet um i see yeah i see when when things are happening oh they're doing just... online stuff actually they're doing online so oh, uh if, if go. anyone goes to their website look elastic arts chicago yep they're doing online stuff now so wonderful take a look yeah um i don't know if the other venues are definitely look into that though yeah uh constellation chicago um it does a pretty good i hadn't heard of yeah um is a pretty does a pretty good job of promoting new music um new stuff they'll have some traditional concerts in there but um i've always nice to mix it up yeah i think they do it they it's as much of a they have two separate rooms and one's more of a dance studio actually so i know that they do like a lot of performance art stuff there too so that's something i want to do more of is performance art yeah 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 uh, yeah, there's just a great there's a great number of small venues, and I think that goes yeah. with a lot. A lot of large cities have a similar thing. I'm not saying Chicago's... yeah, you just have to know the scenes. Right. I think Chicago is kind of fun in the sense that you can find a, and and this is also I think this is also true for New York, yeah. especially as New York just has everything. Like yeah, you, anything you want, you can find it in New York. Right. For like any scene, no matter right. what, if you if you know people or know the place you can find it Mm -hmm. um but that's just kind of the the fun thing about being a city like chicago or new york is is finding those little spaces and those small venues that are committed to right interesting art really i mean just in general just interesting art and interesting media right right so final thoughts and wrapping up the the relationship between the composer and the performer has certainly shifted. It's 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 interesting how it has its roots in yeah. very very early Western music, and then it began to deviate away from that in the uh, like mid twentieth century. And now we're resurfacing that idea yeah. of the composer also being a performer and promoting their own work and doing the work of others. Yeah, and kind of the biggest difference is now that you have these hyper-dedicated performers that are not going to be composers, but you right. have composers who kind of have to be performers, really. Right. And it's and it's so necessary for the for the as we've already talked about for the the composers to be able to perform and such. And it's it's right. interesting how that's come back, and it's I think it's really good. Yeah. For it because it it's hopefully going to drive some of that ego out. Yeah, and uh, ex- I think that's a great point. You know, removing some stuff from the canon and um, really moving forward. Um, you know, we can all agree twenty twenty is a crap year, but I think that this decade can be the dawn of a mentality of moving forward, moving past baggage of the past. I lost you for a little bit there, but I think. Uh, oh. Um. As long as you got it on your end. Oh, fine, yeah, you're right. Which yeah, I, you're, yeah. I, I bet you did, so yeah. I just kind of interrupted. Um, well, what I was saying is, like, 20, you know, the the 2020s can be used as a decade of moving forward and moving past, you know, baggage and, yeah. um, 
It's not. Is that almost like how the twenties were used a hundred years ago? <laughs> they might be. <laughs> it gets to repeat itself. It's crazy, man. Yes. <laughs> um. So what do you got it's for so me? Weird to me? Yeah. What do you got for oh, me this all week? All right. Yeah. 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 Recommendations. Let's dive on in. What do I have for you, Austin? I have. Um, after listening to Sarah Bell read, I was debating between a few things before okay. I listened to her stuff to show to you, but I settled on a Norwegian composer okay. named Jan-Erik Mikkelsen. Okay. And uh, his recent project is San. Okay. And it's an album that he released, which has San, Songer for orchestra, and Parts 2 for orchestra. Okay. Cool. Uh, the first one, San, is... Uh, from what I've kind of gathered about it, it's a uh, san is the Korean word for mountain. Oh, okay. Which is kind of cool. And he apparently blends these, and I'm not extremely familiar with Korean idioms and instruments and things like that, so mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily pick up on it right away. But I'd be interested to hear what some people I know, if they listen to it, who have yeah. more of a grounding in Korean music. But... Okay. In any case, he uh, that's a really cool piece. Uses, I think, some interesting, similar type of characteristics as Sarah Bell Reed's works, and okay. I think you'll you'll find it really interesting with the uh, soundscapes and stuff. It features the Oslo Philharmonic Norwegian Radio cool. Orchestra, and a really interesting trio that we can talk about uh, when you have a listen to it. But it's uh, the trio is Poing, P O I N G. Okay. <laughs> And they're an accordion, bass, and saxophone trio based in Oslo. <laughs> okay. And they're fantastic. Go to their website, everybody, and revel in the socialist glory that they are. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so speaking of Tonya Ko, I actually have a piece of hers that uh, you should check out. Um, awesome. It's a large chamber work of hers called Very Tall, Very Bright. Um, to be honest... If you know, if you just listen to any of her works, you know that's great. But um, I remember her um, showing us uh, this piece specifically um, when she came and did her seminar. It was very cool. So I would awesome. love to uh, introduce you to her work. Yeah, no, yep. for sure. I'm super excited. Yeah, I yep. don't know her as well as I clearly should. Just yeah. giving a glance at her bio. Yeah, no, she's she's great. Good shit. It just comes down to me not knowing enough about <laughs> composers in general. Dude, there's so many. It's ridiculous. I can't keep up with it, man. Yeah. All right. Well, that was uh, that was fun. That's a wrap. We yeah. can. Uh, I think we can stop there and yeah. uh, hope everybody has a good time in the intervening, you know, spell between uh, episode two and episode three. So uh, bye.